Amen. Amen. Indeed. No one who sets their hope, their faith in Christ will be disappointed. And we will see that many ways and factors as we tune to our text. So join me in Matthew chapter 17. And it proves, as I was talking with a brother after services, proves a fitting uh, introduction or segue into this table that we're going to come and remember, namely of the Lord's table, remembering the gospel and remembering Jesus' death and resurrection for us. But we will see that in this story, the series of stories put together, that demonstrate our need for faith, of our need to rely on our Christ, that really there's no other place worth setting our trust, our reliance, no one we can trust as much as Him. But even as we turn to His Word, we need His help. We need His help there. And so we're going to pray. So would you pray with me once more? Father, we do need your help as we turn to your word. We confess and say that you are our God. And as we say so, we say we believe, and yet we come along to say, but help our unbelief. We have nowhere else to turn. We know you have the words of life. Strengthen us for even this moment to hear your word preached. Spirit, accompany the proclamation of your word and press it upon the hearts of your people that we would be drawn to greater faith and faithfulness unto you, namely because you are worthy of it. So may from this time you receive all the glory, we pray. Amen. How much faith do you have? How much faith do you have? Not enough. That's a, maybe a good response. For me, it depends what I'm talking about. Depends what the object that I might be trusting or not trusting in. So for example, apparently I have a lot of faith in pilots and in airplanes. Because I don't typically give it a second thought when I get on a plane or when I send my family onto one. I don't think about how we are then cruising at 500 miles an hour, a speed I'd never normally go, certainly not in my car, usually. And that I'm in air six miles from the ground. I don't think about that. If I did, I would never get on an airplane. Maybe some of you are that way because that's what you all you think about. But I don't, I don't give it a second thought. I guess I trust the pilots, the, the, the airplane mechanics, the air traffic controllers, all involved. I trust them. I trust them more than I trust myself, that's for sure. If I was flying the plane, I would be a bit more nervous, that is without a doubt. I'm even nervous when I get on an extension ladder on my house. This was recently. I was vaulted a whole 20 feet in the air on the side of my house. Uh, it's a lot less than six miles, that's for sure. But I can tell you, I was quite nervous uh, why? Because I put the ladder there. I was the one who made sure it was secure. I had some help, I will say, and I'm so glad I did. He was such an encouragement to me. Uh, nevertheless, I was the one who adjusted the ladder, and I was the one going up it. Um, I was not at all confident I had done this securely. Apparently, I survived. But I will say my legs were a bit wobbly on that ladder. Well, would you know that your spiritual health stems from your faith, your strength of faith, your trust in Christ? Your ability, your resolve to trust Him will immediately affect your ability to fight sin, to obey Him, to to joyfully walk after Him. It all hinges in this way, in one sense, on your strength of faith, on how well you can turn your eyes away from you and put your reliance, your trust, your dependence, lean on someone else, namely, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this text this morning, Matthew's gospel, will guide us into three realms, three areas of the Christian life where we will be assured we have all the more reason to rest on Christ than we do on ourselves. Because even a little bit of faith, 
Even just a little faith placed in a big God unlocks tremendous power. So the word word is for us, increase your faith in Christ. In other words, rely more and more, lean more and more, depend more and more on Him than you. And again, we'll see it unfold in these three areas. And the first is this, increase your faith in God's power. Increase your, increase your faith in God's power, verses 14 to 20. An increase in your faith comes the more you recognize how you are not trustworthy, the more you recognize how weak you are, how powerless you are, namely and especially compared to Him, how much greater and stronger than He is. That's where your faith really begins. When you start to transfer your lean, your dependence, your reliance away from you and onto Christ. And most of all, as we see here, His power. Now, we see this kind of faith pictured for us as our text opens in verse 14. We find it in the behavior of this desperate father. So look at this, Matthew 17, verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, kneeling before him. And I'm not sure there the translation is captured, the, the urgency this father has. I, I like the way the New American Standard Bible renders this verse when it says, falling on his knees before Jesus. He's getting low. He's putting himself in the dirt at Jesus' feet. He's begging, imploring, pleading Jesus. Now, what does this man want so badly? What would drive him to grovel on the ground? Well, if you're a parent, you would not be surprised to see a dad who would do anything to alleviate the suffering of his child. And so we see that's what's at hand. Verse 15 He falls at Jesus' feet and cries out, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and and often into the water. He's begging. He's begging Jesus to help his boy. Now, what's wrong with the boy? What's the trouble? And the current text of the English Standard Bible, I think, says it best, as I just read, that the son has seizures and suffers terribly. And I emphasize there that's the current text of the English Standard Version because they actually updated that verse a few years ago. Earlier editions of the ESV read, my son is an epileptic. And I think the trouble is, why that's not the best translation today, is because in our day, we classify an epileptic as somebody who has a medical diagnosis. They, They have epileptic seizures. That is, this is something, though not always, that we can attribute to some other medical issue, whether hereditary genetics or maybe a brain injury. And that's why epilepsy can be treated many times with some medicine. But the point is, as this text makes clear, this boy is not, he doesn't have some medical problem. He doesn't have a biological problem. He has a deeply spiritual one. He's possessed by a demon. He's tortured by an evil spirit. And so, to make it clear, the text here does not teach, nor should we assume assume that epileptic seizures always or normally arise from demonic activity and attacks, Not not at all. And so, to avoid such confusion, I think the translation committee did well to just change the word to simply describe what's happening. The boy has seizures, as opposed to assume then what's the cause of it. Now, certainly, just to think about seizures, seizures alone is something you can't control, Uh, something that can happen and and occur so suddenly. I mean, that can be scary enough, especially as a, 
You just feel your helplessness as a parent watching your child suffer in such a way. But combine that with, not only is that scary enough, but when these seizures seize the boy, they thrust him into danger. They propel him into self-harm. The seizures seem to strike at the worst, most inopportune, dangerous times. Verse 15 again, he has seizures, he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. When he's seized, he's being attacked. The demon's out to get him, to try and kill him, to either burn and scold him in the fire or to drown him in the water. This boy has been targeted and his father's just had to watch helplessly. That would explain some of his desperate posture here. But all of that, as bad as all of that is, compound that grief when you what you thought was your one shot at hope, your one shot at deliverance for your son, it didn't work. Look at this, verse 16. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. Can you imagine this? Like, it didn't work. The one shot we had, it didn't work. It didn't do anything. Do you get then why in seeing Jesus, he falls at his feet, groveling? I mean, have you been there yourself? Have you felt like that? Desperate, powerless? Where should we? Can we turn? Who, what, and who can we trust? Now, in a moment, Jesus will intervene. He's going to deliver this child. We read that a moment ago. He's going to cast out the demon who was afflicting him. But before Jesus does this and comes in and saves the day, before he does this, verse 17, Jesus publicly laments. Let's see it. Verse 17, and Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? If you didn't know better, you might say, is Jesus complaining? He sounds real discouraged, doesn't he? Disappointed even. And what so discouraged him? Well, their faithlessness, their unbelief. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. They had little to no faith in him, even despite all that he had done, all that they had seen. I mean, after all this time, they still don't trust in him. And this was especially true, of course, of the crowds. The crowds had been those who had been seeing Jesus and his miracles from afar, holding at arm's length, kind of wondering, maybe they'll draw near for a quick meal, but then they'll withdraw again, not sure what to make of him. And yet here, Jesus is not just talking about the crowds, but he's including his disciples, those who had first row seats to see His glories, to see His many miracles. They had been seeing His goodness on display over and over again, and even they don't trust Him. This claim that, he, that they are a faithless generation strikes even against the disciples. But even in the midst of such failure and such faithlessness, there surfaces here an encouraging word. Jesus is not going to leave the boy or this distressed father to suffer any longer. To put it in our own context, even when be it God's people fail you, Christ will not. Verse 18, 
And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. It was not a problem for Jesus. And so you see, the disciples' weak faith had hindered things. It had got in the way. But this, though, is surely the point. And what's being brought out by Matthew in this text, the power is found with God in Christ, not in us and not even in our strength of faith. For next, the disciples ask what went wrong. And you'll notice in verse 19, they did so privately. They didn't want to be exposed before everyone else. Let's see it, verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? Why could we not cast it out? Now understand, earlier in their ministry, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus actually commissioned the twelve, and He says He gives them the authority to cast out demons. And by all implication, we understand they were casting out demons time and time again. And yet they came to this one, and it didn't work. And they don't understand. In their minds, this was no different. Or, or maybe it is, oh, this was a really tough case. Well, is that why? Well, sort of. But here's the real reason why they couldn't do it. Look at verse 20. Here's Jesus' answer. They wonder, why couldn't we cast out this demon? Here's Jesus' answer, verse 20. He said to them, because of your little faith. Why couldn't they help the boy? Why couldn't they cast out the demon? Their faith was too small. They had too little faith. So, are are you saying they just didn't believe enough? They didn't believe hard enough? As if they just need to stir up this more faith on the inside. Oh, yeah, I'll really believe this. Now, it's tricky. Because that's not really how faith works, is it? It doesn't work quite like that. You can't just believe harder. In a way, faith is really a lot like humility. The more you think you have it in you because of you, the more you probably don't have it. It's not something you can just manufacture from the inside. Because note this, note this, Jesus proves, he underscores their lack of faith, but then he explains a bit how faith works. Verse 20, he said to them, because of your little faith, that's why you couldn't cast out the demon, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it's going to move. The implication, nothing will be impossible for you. On the one hand, what does this seem to tell us? Well, that faith is a very powerful thing, but as we'll see, it's not so much faith itself. Because the grain of a mustard seed, this was the tiniest seed, as you probably know, of Jesus' day. If you had just that much faith, the point is, a tiniest little bit, a mustard seed grain is very small. If you can imagine a peppercorn ball that you would, of course, we grind to make pepper, well, a mustard seed one is like 10 times as small, teeny weeny weeny. And if you had just that much faith, the littlest bit really that you can see or imagine You can do, you can order powerful things, earth-shaking, shattering things. You can speak to mountains and they go places. Hey, Shenandoah, get over here. You want to go skiing this weekend? Rockies, come here. 
We're talking earth-shaking faith. We're talking the greatest of obstacles, mountains, get moved with a believing word. Such that, again, Jesus puts it this way. Here's the point. Nothing with just a mustard seed of faith will be impossible for you. But here's the trick with faith, coming to it now. We must understand Jesus here. What's the point of his whole illustration with pointing out that it's just the littlest bit of faith that can move a mountain? Is he really highlighting or saying then, listen, disciples, your faith is so small, it's just microscopic. The point is, your faith is like a level two, and it needed to be a level four for this one. It's smaller than a mustard seed. Uh, You just need to beef up your belief, get it a bit bigger, otherwise God can't work through you. I don't think that's his point. Think about it. What is Jesus' point? pointing out this smallest amount of faith can do great things. The point is this. You don't need a giant faith to do great things for God. A little bit, a mustard seed faith will do just fine. Why? Because it's really not then about the amount of your faith. It's the one your faith is in and how strong He is. Which means you have to trust and rely upon Him. This is what the disciples missed. It's like they showed up on the scene. Oh, another demon? Yeah, I've been there, done that. I got this, guys. You should see my resume. I'm commissioned by Jesus. This is going to go so well for you. Bring him on. No, no. Faith is you move your reliance from you to Jesus. You lean on him far more than you look to your own value or your own abilities. And so, Christian, have your years of faithfulness walking with Christ, have they made you more reliant on your own ability to follow Jesus than you actually trust in Jesus yourself? That is, do you find yourself thinking things like, well, I shouldn't be tempted by that. I've been a Christian for so long. I can't be lured by that sin. I'm above this. Or you can say things like, Oh, I can teach that Bible study easy peasy. I taught it many times before, no problem. Or I can share the gospel, no problem, I got this. Been there, done that. You should have seen me before. Of course my kids will turn out okay. I'm such a faithful Christian dad, parent. You should know how much I pray for them. In other words, have you mistaken God's gracious work in your life? for your own spiritual power and maturity? Have you taken something that was a gift of God at work in you and thought, oh, that was me doing that. I got this. Did you think your spiritual maturity was something that you accomplished by your spiritual grit and determination? Well, here's a couple warning signs if you think that might be you. First off, you're going to be prone to judge and condemn others, other Christians, because they're not as fervent or holy as you are. Because you assume they should be as good as you. Because it's just about trying hard. It's about having the ability within yourself and they can't measure up. Too bad for them. Or another sign that you're resting on yourself and not relying on Christ would be you just start spiritually coasting. And you don't really get a thought to spiritual things. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm set. I got this. But here's the thing. If we're not really dealing with the amount of our faith, but really where our faith is in, because it only takes a mustard seed worth of faith, the smallest thing, 
then we're actually just talking about the strength of our God. That's what we're talking about. Do you believe He is strong? Do you believe that He will keep His word? Is His word true? Is it trustworthy? That's what faith is. Will you depend and walk by the truth of His word? That He will keep it. Or does it look like you only obey Him, you only give for Him, you only serve for Him, when you feel like you can control everything still? When you can be your own safety net? Or will you obey Him? Will you fight sin? Even when you're not sure how you're going to survive it. How you will go on. Will you trust, will you rely on His power to keep fighting it? Or are you just going to give up and give in? Or just pretend it doesn't matter? I don't know if I can do that, Rick. I've fallen so many times before. The urge is so great. I don't know if I can do it. That's the point, isn't it? We're not talking about faith in you. We're not talking about faith in faith. We're talking about we trust a Christ who is stronger than we know. It's not about you casting out the demon. Why can't we cast the demon out? It's not about your strength. It's really to this question, though, is Christ strong enough? We know He is. And so then trust Him, even just a little bit, even just a mustard seed bit. Just trust Him with one little step of further obedience toward pursuing righteousness and away from those sins and temptations. And if you don't know how you can do it, that's where faith comes in. You say, I don't know how I can do this, but you call me to it, oh Jesus. Help me, I'm stepping forward in faith. Rely upon His strength, not yours to be faithful. And as we've been walking through Matthew's gospel, we've seen this. Your faith will not increase It will not swell or grow the more you look inside of you trying to find a sure answer. But how's your faith going to grow? The more and more you look away from you and you look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes on Christ. Listen to Christ. Even when He tells you your faith is small. He doesn't say it to put you aside. He says it to have you draw near to Him to trust Him in your weakness. And so as we prayed, even just draw near to say, yes, I believe, Lord Jesus, but help my unbelief. And I think that's where prayer really, or where faith really starts, isn't it? It's prayer, dependence upon Him. Why? Because the power is with Him, not you. Second, expand your faith in God's plan. So here's the second realm aspect of the Christian life where our faith can grow. It can grow in our trust in God's plan. And so as they continue their journey back home, so to speak, to Galilee, uh, the Lord Jesus now, He reminds them of the plan God has set out before them. And we see it starting here in verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Uh Uh-oh, we heard about this, right? Jesus here predicts his suffering and death a second time. And they didn't like it the first time that they heard it. Remember Peter objected? No, no, God forbid Jesus, that ain't going to happen to you. To only then have Jesus call him Satan for saying such things. In other words, the thought of Jesus dying shocked them. This is not the kind of Messiah they were expecting. Frankly, it's not the kind of Messiah they wanted. They wanted a conquering king. They didn't want a martyr. 
But perhaps given what they had just seen, the healing at this miracle, this seemingly powerful demon cast away, and for some of them, the, the sight of the glory of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Maybe they thought all that talk about going to Jerusalem to go die, we misheard him. <laughs> he wasn't talking about that at all. Only once he gathers together his 12 again in Galilee, all together, all 12 of them, he picks up right where he left off. Verse 22 again, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered in the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day and they were greatly distressed. Note the disciples' response there. They were greatly distressed. They heard this news and it was saddening to them. They're suddenly sullen, grieved at this plan and at this news. I think one translation captures it best when it reads, the disciples were filled with grief, overwhelmed, exceedingly sorrowful at this news, which, consider this, standing from our vantage point, you know, this side in history of the cross and the empty tomb, doesn't that seem like a strange response from them? Like, what did Jesus just tell them in verses 22 and 23? Go read 1 Corinthians 15. This is the very facts of the good news, the gospel. What did he tell them? I'm coming to die for your sins, and I'm going to be so dead, I'm going to be judged by God, but I'm going to rise from the dead on the third day. I mean, this is what we call the good news. Disciples, don't you get it? I'm coming to be broken for you. I'm coming to be crushed for you. I'm coming to be forsaken for you. This is the gospel good news, disciples. Salvation is near. And they're sad. They're sullen. They have no sense of what Jesus is talking about. When he talks about rising from the dead, it just goes right over their heads, doesn't it? They're too in shock, too caught off guard by this thought their Savior, the one they're trusting, is going to die. They're too grieved to really hear his word, to hear his promise. Now, before we fault them, Do you ever respond like that? Where grief so overwhelms you, you start to stop hearing the promises of God. We look at our circumstances, the the providences sent our way, and we're distressed by them. We're grieved. We become overwhelmed at the pain. And isn't it interesting and kind of sad, really, that sometimes or most times, perhaps, The very thing stealing our hope, stealing our joy, quenching our faith is not even the actual bad circumstances in our life. It's the ones we see on the horizon that might only happen. We're overcome with worry what might come. But take note of this. The glory of God is found. This God who orchestrates all of history perfectly to his music, where every note is in perfect harmony by his design. The glory of God is actually discovered as he works glorious and joyful good even out of such trouble and evil. That's how our glorious God works. Such that his good plan always wins. And he always wins for his people. He's saying, trust me in this. 
Indeed, Scripture testifies over and over again with many instances of man planning and executing all kinds of evil that then God uses those very means to accomplish a glorious good. One of the chief ones, chief ones we studied it a few years ago in the book of Genesis that concludes with the Joseph story. Remember him? He suffered. He was jealously betrayed by his brothers, the very people of God. He was sold into slavery. He was thrown in prison, framed. And it was from this place in this way, by design, God placed Joseph in the perfect place to save and redeem the very people of God that did these evils to him and to save and redeem the nations that came to Egypt to get food. God did it through Joseph such that he concludes in the book, you meant it for evil, but God meant good by it all along. That's what our God does. And most of all, we can learn to trust this God as we are walking through some difficulties, as we are called to suffer even for His name, as we look to the cross as the ultimate testimony that God works good through bad. Because consider it, right? The cross was excruciating, literally. There, Jesus took the wrath of God. Understand, that wasn't pleasant. Jesus, knowing what's to come, even pleaded with the Father, let's do this another way. Not my will, but yours be done. And yet, he embraced the will of God. He went through that horrific pain, as foretold here. Why? To accomplish a glorious salvation. A gracious saving of God. A saving by God of sinners to the full. Such that in the end we say, glory to Christ. He did all the work. And he did it by a painful providence and death. Can our God not accomplish great good even through pain? In other words, when there's pain, can you trust him? I mean, isn't that, of course we can. And isn't that why we cling to those promises that we rehearse to one another, especially like Romans 8, 28. And we know that those who love God, we know all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose, because that's what our God does. But understand, that's not because the all things that happen to us feel good or that they are painless or comfortable in and of themselves. In Romans 8, Paul will go on to speak of Christians being victims of tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, swords. That's all very bad, to be clear. It's not good in and of itself. But the glory is, and why we can trust Him, why we can even endure the pain, is because even such bad things are indeed part of the all things that He will turn into good in the end. This is what our God does. And if you can't see that in your life right now, whatever the trouble is, I don't know what you're walking through, but whatever that trouble is, and you have no view on how could good ever come from this, don't look past the cross. That Saturday after Jesus' death, the disciples hid and wept. They had no hope. Their Savior was dead. Despite whatever the promises of Christ were, like here when he said, I'm going to rise on the third day, that was nowhere seemingly in their minds. Even though they had no hope and their faith was weak, you know what happened? Dawn came anyway. 
The empty tomb came anyway. Jesus rose from the dead anyway. Don't let your bad, tough circumstances overwhelm the promises of God in your heart. He has a way of even taking the bad and turning it for a glorious good in the end. And the cross is the ultimate proof of that. Finally, deepen your faith in God's provision. Deepen your faith in God's provision. A related element to this then is that we can rest on what He will provide, knowing He will meet our needs and the ultimate and greatest need. This aspect of faith shows as Peter is posed a question from this tax man of sorts. Verse 24 now. And when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? And so get this, they're, they're arriving to Capernaum. This is in Galilee. They're, they're, they've come out of the Gentile country in the north. They're back in the northern part of Israel, and they're getting closer and closer to home. And here they are at home base in Capernaum, and Jesus and his disciples, they're approached, or namely Peter's approached, by this tax man who had missed them perhaps the first time around, but now he's ready to collect. Now these taxmen, these were not Roman And nor were they the standard Jewish tax collectors like Matthew. That is, these guys going around here, they're not acquiring money for Rome, but they're collecting money for the temple. Most specifically, it says that they were collectors of the two drachma tax. Where does this come from? In Exodus chapter 30, the Lord required in the Old Testament law that every Hebrew male pay a half shekel for the upkeep of the temple. A half shekel in Jewish monetary units is worth two drachmas in Greek monetary units. So what's going on? These these collectors are just following Exodus, and they're coming and asking for the, the half shekel tax, the two drachma tax, to collect money to sustain the temple. And so they find Peter, apparently having not yet collected from Jesus, and they pose Peter this question. Is Jesus going to pay? And the way they ask it, they assume He will, perhaps because He has year after year in the past. Is Jesus still going to pay the tax? He is, isn't He? And Peter, he gives the right answer and says, yes, verse 25 begins. But it's one of those times where you got the answer right, but the way you got to the answer was wrong. That's evident here. Because as soon as Peter comes back in the house... Jesus finds him, and Jesus starts asking Peter questions. It's like somehow Jesus knew exactly what Peter had been talking about out there. And so he poses this question, verse 25, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? It's a simple question. I think most children would get it right. Peter answers correctly. Well, from others. But then when he does, Jesus then gives the punchline. This is what Peter misunderstood, and this is what Jesus is highlighting now. Look at verse 26. And when Peter said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free, Peter. Now think about all that we've been hearing about Jesus throughout this gospel. What was declared by the Father at Jesus' baptism? 
This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. What did the father proclaim at the Mount of Transfiguration before Peter and the other two disciples? This is my son, my beloved son, listen to him. What did Peter even say in an event earlier when Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? What did Peter say? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter, did you think about that when you were asked the question about the temple tax? I'm a son, Peter. I'm God's son. I'm free. I don't pay taxes to my father. I'm in the family. I don't have to pay such taxes. Even if I will, it's not required. It's not needed. And so it is, even as Jesus continues, yes, the sons are free, but hey, let's pay it anyway this time. This one last time. Why? Well, he tells us here, verse 27, because so they don't unduly offend anyone. In other words, we're not about flaunting our freedoms. We're not about just offending people to get after our rights, especially so we can spite them or confuse them. We'll, we'll pay the tax. Verse 27. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, Peter, and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So first of all, we just see that this is a miraculous provision, gift from God. I mean, what are the chances of this? Okay, you're going to, we, we've seen Peter trying to fish with nets and he had a hard time. So here you go, you got a hook, you're going to go out there and your first cast, you're going to get a fish. And not only are you going to get a fish, but the fish is going to have a coin inside. And you're not just going to have any coin, you're going to have a specific coin. You're going to have a whole shekel. Not a half shekel, but a whole shekel, or the Greek stator, which was the equivalent to the Jewish monetary units of the whole shekel. What's the point? It was a half, half shekel tax for the temple, and this whole shekel will take care of us both. That's a marvelous provision, but even the way God and His sovereignty orders it tells us something, too, about Peter and everyone else who receives the Son. What's this all about? Well, again, rehearse the riddle that Jesus started with, that he posed to Peter. Who gets taxed, Peter, sons or strangers? And of course, well, the answer is strangers get taxed because we just intuitively know sons are free. So then when the temple guys come and ask if Jesus would pay the temple tax, Peter could have said, well, no, of course not. He's God's son. The son doesn't pay taxes to the father. But notice, Jesus says, and in the original, this is clear, so that we don't offend them, so that we don't offend these people. You're going to take a hook, you're going to cast for a fish, and you're going to find a coin, and you're going to pay our tax anyways, both mine and yours, Peter. What's Jesus saying? Peter, you're a son. I've made you a son. You're in the family. We don't have to pay this tax because sons are free. And know this, dear brothers and sisters. This truth stands not just for Peter, but for all those that look to the Son of God for saving. 
By faith, you too are God's son or daughter. By faith, one in whom he surely delights. That's what Christ gives us. That's what he provides for us. That you get to be a beloved son or daughter of God. He has the authority to do this. He has the power to do it because he paid the price to accomplish it. John in his gospel said it this way. John chapter 1 verse 12. But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, that is trusted him, Jesus gave the right to become children, sons and daughters of our God. He's saying, by my authority, by who I am and the work I will do, I have bought you by faith and brought you into the family of God. I pay your adoption price. So what does this mean, brothers and sisters? In Christ, you are free as a son in the family is free. Which with God, this means that you are free from the law's guilt. This means you're free from condemnation. You're free from sin's bondage. You're free from the fear of death and the judgment seat of God. You're free from never measuring up. You're free from feeling abandoned and forsaken. You are free, brothers and sisters, because you are sons by the almighty work of the Son of God. He paid the price. He's adopted you in. You are free. That's what he's given. That's his great provision. But Rick, which is great, I'm so glad to have those spiritual blessings by faith in Christ, but I have real needs today. Can I trust him today, not just for my eternity? Well, to that, he knows what you need, doesn't he? He loves you, doesn't he now? He calls you a beloved son. He made you his son, hasn't he? Won't he provide for you? Won't he give you just what you need to honor him and delight in him just when you need it? Now, does that mean all of life will be easy? No, he calls us to die daily to ourselves. Does that mean all of life now is going to be health, wealth, and prosperity, our best life now? No, no, we've been over that. But what does it mean? Yes, there's this gift of a better life to come and all the glorious provisions you need to get you there. Because he'll make sure none of his brothers or sisters are lost. For he is not ashamed because of his death. He is not ashamed to call you sinner though you are his brother. And that's what we come to proclaim at this table. This represents the adoption price that was paid that we were then brought into the family of God. And if he would give himself in this, what else will he not give you to get you there to the end? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's praise our great provider. Let's pray together.